You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. All the speculation that Elon Musk is getting cold feet about acquiring Twitter comes from Musk himself. From his tweet last Friday that the deal was on hold to his very tentative answer to the question at the all-in summit in Miami on Monday. Is this Twitter deal going to get closed, do you think? What are the chances here? Well... I mean, it really depends on, on, a, on a lot of factors here. Um, I'm still waiting for uh, some sort of uh, logical explanation for the number of sort of fake or spam accounts on Twitter. Um, and Twitter is, is refusing to tell us. And then a Musk attempt at some legalese. You know, it's a material adverse uh, misstatement. Uh, you know, if, if, if they in fact uh, have been um, vociferously claiming less than 5% of fake or spam accounts, but in fact, it is four or five times that number or perhaps 10 times that number. This is a big deal. Joining me to help parse through the latest from Musk is Eric Talley, a professor at Columbia Law School. Eric, Musk even made a comparison to buying a house with termites. Does it sound like he's trying to give some legal reasons for getting out of the deal? It sounds like it is. It sounds like he has been undergoing some coaching, possibly some therapy by his lawyer. The grounds that he is now citing, he's starting to invoke some formal legal terms that are part of the contract that he signed with Twitter related to what's known as a material adverse effect. Now, what this basically is, it's sort of an act of God type of provision that says, if something you know crazy happens or something that is you know really awry from what we thought we were getting into, then the buyer or the seller can walk away. However, the usual heft of these sorts of provisions is that they are hard to invoke, and if you're going to try to use one of them, you actually bear the burden of demonstrating that there was this incredible surprise that one would never have expected that now has materially undercut the value of this company. And there, I think that's going to be an incredibly difficult 
hill for Musk to surmount. The main thing that he is citing is that in various securities disclosures, Twitter misstated the number of their bots. But first of all, if you actually read the disclosure, they say in a very lawyered way that, you know, we've tried the best we can to determine how many of our accounts are bots and how many are not. And this is actually a really hard thing to figure out. We may not be getting it right, but what we've come up with with our sampling is that fewer than 5%, but just realize that we might be wrong and it may be the best way to measure this, something other than the way that we've measured it. This does not strike me as the type of claim that is analogous to saying, I hereby proclaim that there are no termites in this house. It's almost like proclaiming there might be termites. We haven't seen any. We looked. We had a particular strategy for looking for them. We didn't see any or we didn't see that many, but our strategy might be wrong. So you've got both a standard for a material adverse effect that is very, very high, something that's going to have to be borne by him if he's going to try to make this argument in court, and a glaring alternative theory as to why he doesn't want to go through with this deal, which is the fact that the stock prices have fallen in the tech sector since he signed up the deal at $54.20. And he now has buyer's remorse and therefore is looking anywhere to try to find an escape hatch to jump out of. But this one does not strike me as one that is going to be all that friendly for him. There was some talk about renegotiating the price when the House has termites, although according to Bloomberg sources... The deal is still on track as is. There's always a possibility of recutting the price of a deal, but it's always done in the shadow of what are the likely rights, duties, and obligations that the parties have if they don't. Based on this particular assertion by Musk, it seems like a notably weak case for him to be able to walk away from the deal. Very low probability, and therefore... If everyone knows that he's bargaining, not holding an ace in his hand, but holding a two of clubs, he's not going to be able to bargain for very much if the Twitter board is doing their job. Is any of this really surprising, given that his approach to this deal has been unconventional from the start? The one thing that is maybe a little surprising about his tactics is that he has ended up seizing upon something that looks like it is going to be a very difficult to engineer theory. The material adverse effect argument very much is stacked against him. I would have thought, and in fact, I think it may well be the case that this strategy may shift if he continues to want to either get out of the deal or to go back to the bargaining table. Another aspect of this deal is that he could potentially walk away or maybe only walk away and have to pay a billion dollars if the financing of the deal falls through. And there, it seems like there might be more room for things to happen, particularly if the folks who have agreed to lend $13 billion into this deal get cold feet, either get cold feet by themselves or get cold feet after having been encouraged to get cold feet from Elon Musk himself. So I'm going to guess that if this melodrama continues to play out, it may end up shifting away from the bot issue, which in my view is a bit of a sideshow, and this financing contingency may take more center stage. Former President Trump said there's no way that Elon Musk will buy Twitter at such a ridiculous price. Do you agree with that? It's seeming more and more unlikely that Musk is going to buy Twitter. Well, last I checked, former President Trump had not been to law school. And one of the things that is a considerable complication here is that Elon Musk has already entered into a contract 
in which he substantially obliges himself to make steps towards buying Twitter at a cash price that he's already stated. So the economics of this deal, I think, are probably causing Elon Musk to think twice about whether he you know, really has buyer's remorse here. I mean, I suspect he does, if for no other reason, because he ended up paying a price that was probably higher than it would have been had he just waited for a few more weeks. That having been said, the history books are filled with people who are buying companies who then get some buyer's remorse and try to get out of them. But the contracts that they've entered into make it either hard or impossible to get out of it. So one big factor here is trying to determine to what extent the deal that Musk ended up entering into with Twitter is going to end up tying his own hands later on or forcing a fairly difficult renegotiation with the Twitter board sitting on a fair amount of bargaining power. If you just sort of stare at the document itself, this is a document that looks, for what they say in the industry, relatively seller-friendly. The company that's selling itself, there aren't that many ways that Musk can walk away. Now, there are some aspects to it that make it look like he could, right? There's a termination fee that he would have to pay of a billion dollars if he were to walk away. But that's really only one of the provisions in the deal. And another one, which is far more important, is a provision that's called a specific performance provision. And that's just legalese for either side. If the other side wants to try to back out, they can essentially force the party or get a court order forcing the party to go forward. And that's a provision that's in this deal. It doesn't provide that many outs for Elon Musk. The one that it might help provide is if for some reason he's unable to secure financing for the deal, then that might allow that specific performance provision to fall away. So, you know, I think a lot of people are sort of thinking that the disclosure he made this weekend about, you know, whether Twitter has more than 5% bot type or automaton type accounts was essentially trying to set the stage for possibly engineering a failing of the financing of the deal. Now, that one itself is kind of complicated for at least two or three reasons. The first is There isn't a lot of financing left on this deal. It's still a a fair amount of financing, but most of this deal always has been Elon Musk buying a bunch of stock of Twitter, and he's been conscripting a bunch of co-investors to come on with him and actually reducing the amount of debt that he's pledging his Tesla shares to help secure. So he's been actually reducing the debt that's part of this deal, and that's going to make it even harder to you know, engineer a situation where the lenders get cold feet and walk away. The second thing is that the provision that he's, you know, evidently complaining about is something that has been in Twitter's disclosures for a long time. It's a heavily lawyered provision that says, by our account, we don't have more than 5% of these bots who are account holders, but realize that there are just a bunch of different ways to count this up and other ways of counting it up may differ. So it's a heavily lawyered disclosure, one that I don't think anyone would really rely on per se. And yet this seems to be the tack that Musk is taking either so he can you know, figure out a way to walk away himself or give his lenders a pretext to say we refuse to lend from here on in. But it looks relatively thin. It has a very pretextual aspect about it, given what we've always known about Twitter. When would Musk be forced into specific performance and when would he be allowed to pay the billion dollar breakup fee? So if For example, some of the things that 
were warranted or represented in the transaction didn't materialize, or if some of the structures that were part of the deal just couldn't come together, he might be able to walk away and pay this termination fee. On the other hand, that termination fee is clearly subservient to this specific performance provision. So a lot of people have sort of thought, oh, well, he always has this option just to walk away and pay a billion dollars. That's only true if the specific performance provision is not in play. And that provision turns out that you can draft them in a bunch of different ways. And a lot of these contracts have specific performance provisions. Some of them have more escape hatches than the others. By my read of this specific performance provision, the only real escape hatch is a failure of financing. And so the specific performance aspect of this contract is very much a strong hand that the Twitter board is going to be able to play. You know, the the one thing that he might end up trying to do is to attempt to be active in engineering a failure of financing, essentially a, you know, bring the dog to the homework, you know, put some dog food on the homework and have the dog eat it. But that raises a bunch of risks itself. It may be that some of these lenders, maybe the whole reason they came along is that they just want to make sure that they stay in in Musk's good graces so that next time Twitter needs some financing or next time SpaceX or the boring company needs to do some deals, they're going to be on, in his Rolodex and they don't want to you know, push him back. And so it might be that they'll play ball with possibly, you know, sort of faking their way to a refusal to finance the deal. But that comes with risks as well. You know, those banks also have other clients that they want to maintain reputations for. And, you know, when they come in to finance a deal and say, no, this financing is firm, do they cannibalize their own reputation by having a case in the past where they just change their mind willy-nilly on the behest of an important client? That causes them to lose credibility in the market. Possibly just as important is that if these third parties play an active role in trying to gin up kind of a fabricated case for why financing isn't possible anymore, that could put them in some legal peril themselves for basically playing an active role in effectively you know, helping someone else breach a contract. And so there is a little bit of exposure if you're too willing to play ball with Elon Musk, even if you really want to preserve those later potential deals. So where does this all add up? The Twitter board, if they want to play our strong hand, they're going to be able to play a strong hand. Legally, they've got a, a very good position from which to bargain. On the other hand, you know, Musk is a guy who clearly has shown himself to be disruptive in all walks of life, including you know, various other people out there who are his adoring fans and who might take it upon themselves to have a personal mission to, you know, crash Twitter's stock if things go poorly. And so that type of disruption is probably the main thing he's going to bring to the table or that potential for disruption. It isn't a legal claim. You know, while he's got a couple of windows of opportunity, maybe they are relatively narrow. And most people, I think, don't sort of think that that's going to have much of an effect. But his broader sort of you know, social influence, you know, no doubt could throw some turbulence into these negotiations. My sense, probably what's going to end up happening is that they will go back and they will sort of consider whether there's a deal to be had. I don't think the Twitter board's going to give up much, if anything at all. Possibly there will be a small readjustment to price simply so everyone could claim victory and walk away with their arms in the air. But I don't see this, I don't see this price um, migrating very far below the $54.20 price. I mean, the Twitter board was forced into agreeing to Musk, weren't they? I mean, do they want Musk? 
Well, the irony of this is that they had put up this poison pill before they finally reached an agreement to Musk. And the usual reason that a board will put up a poison pill is to say, look, we're not going to allow this person to manipulate our shareholders into selling at too low of a price. So we're putting up the poison pill so we can bargain for a better price so that this potential acquirer doesn't go around us and end up manipulating our shareholders. When they finally reached the deal, one of the things that a lot of people were surprised at, including myself, is that the price that they reached didn't change at all from the very price that he offered them to begin with. And so there was almost a sense in which a lot of people were thinking, hey, board of directors, if you did the poison pill so that you could have a lot of bargaining power, you sure didn't seem to exercise very much when the same terms that he offered came out the other end of the bargaining. And so weirdly enough, the Twitter board was already taking a little bit of heat for being too limp when it came to bargaining with Elon Musk. And now how fortunes have turned. Now that seemingly limp deal that they reached with him, that they didn't really extract that much more from him, is now looking like it was certainly a fortuitous, if not a genius move by the board. So there's almost a sense in which, you know, I think part of the, you know, part of the board sort of fighting to reclaim their honor, right? That says, no, we we really engaged in heavy bargaining uh, is going to you know, probably push them to dig their heels in a little bit more than they might otherwise do. Do they have also fiduciary duties that they have this offer at 54.20? And if they go much below that, are they foregoing their fiduciary duties to the shareholders? Yeah, once a company has decided it's going to sell control to someone else, it is under a heightened form of fiduciary duties. It's sometimes called Revlon duties. It has to do with a famous case that involved Revlon back in the 1980s. And when you are under those sort of heightened fiduciary obligations, you are under an obligation to take to only take steps that are going to reasonably maximize the benefit to your shareholders in the short term. So right now, if they're sitting as the board and they've got a $54.20 offer that has been signed up, that is on the table, that doesn't have very many closing conditions associated with it, it's going to be really hard for the other side to get out of. If they end up sort of backing out of it, that could put the board itself into peril for not having a backup plan, yet letting go of what is clearly now emerged as a relatively good offer, better than anything else that Twitter's going to have. If you kind of combine that with the fact that, you know, in the days you know, leading up to Musk's um, suddenly getting cold feet, the senior executive regs at, at Twitter looked like a, a rotisserie oven. They were moving, <laughs> they were moving out old ones and moving in new ones. Almost certainly at the behest of trying to get this company ready for its takeover by Elon Musk and some of the people that you know he was going to clearly butt heads with. So there's a sense in which now Twitter has effectively morphed itself enough into something that might even be damaged goods to anyone else who is going to buy the company later on. And I think that gives the board an additional reason why they should fight, right? And not concede, because if they concede, it may not be very long before a plaintiff's attorney says, hey, what were you doing? You had this great deal signed up, and now you basically, you know, gave away the farm with no backup plan. What do you make of this Elon Musk tweeting, Twitter legal just called to complain that I violated their nondisclosure agreement by revealing the bot check sample size is 100? Yeah, so we don't actually know what's in the NDA, because that's not been, been disclosed to us. 
but there probably is an NDA that has to do with some aspects of the due diligence associated with the deal. So anytime you are buying a company, you usually want to do a fair amount of investigation on some of the aspects of what are inside the company. That's usually why these deals end up taking a fair amount of time, because the buyer is trying to satisfy themselves that they're getting something that's valuable. In this case, it appears that Musk not only didn't try to do a lot of that due diligence, but he also didn't extract a contractual warranty in the contract itself that says, you know, don't worry, we have it both 5% bought. You can't find that in the contract itself. That's one of the reasons why, you know, he, he, he's sort of, you know, casting about the securities markets disclosures. So there's a sense in which, you know, this dog ate my homework thing really is resonating. There's, there's essentially nothing surprising in any of the disclosures he talked about it. It was out there in plain sight for everyone to see. You know, there had even been a public dispute about the number of bots that members that Twitter had. So, you know, it's either suggesting he didn't bother doing his diligence on the deal, or he didn't intend to do any diligence on the deal, and he also didn't bake in any promises to the contrary in, in the contract. So it has a lot of the trappings of a fairly hastily entered into contract that was for cash that didn't have too many contingencies in it. And now he's starting to feel like, oh, wow, maybe I don't really want to go through with it, or maybe I can threaten to walk away and and get a better price. In most universes, given the documents that I've seen, that that is a um, pretty speculative bet. But, you know, who knows what to expect in the Elon Musk universe? We've already learned that it is somewhat of a parallel universe from the one everyone else of us lives in. Looking at the paperwork, et cetera, looking at the, the deal, what do you think the chances are that he will actually buy Twitter? I think they are still pretty high. I think the specific performance aspect of it is going to play a, a fairly large role ultimately. It may take a while and they may end up you know, trying, deciding to grease the wheels and having a slight break in price. Much is going to turn on whether the lenders that are lined up to lend money for this acquisition themselves get cold feet. And if they do get cold feet, do they do so sort of honestly, or do they do so in a somewhat of a managed and engineered way? If they do so and do so honestly, that's the only contingency I can see in which this deal doesn't end up closing. I think a lot of people out there sort of feel like it probably will end up closing. And I think this is all a big dance to see if he can get a slight price reduction. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Eric. That's Professor Eric Talley of Columbia Law School. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. On Monday, the Supreme Court, by a vote of 6-3, to struck down another campaign finance law, adding to a line of rulings throwing out campaign finance restrictions. Republican Senator Ted Cruz had challenged the $250,000 cap on candidates using political contributions made after an election to recoup their personal campaign loans. The decision was along ideological lines, and Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the majority opinion, finding that the provision burdens core political speech without furthering an anti-corruption goal. Echoing what Roberts and Justice Amy Coney Barrett said during the oral arguments... There isn't a sufficient corruption, anti-corruption interest, sort of up to 250000 but all, then all of a sudden uh, there is. Cruz what? says that this doesn't enrich him personally because he's no better off than he was before. It's paying a loan, not lining his pockets. But in a blistering dissent, Justice Elena Kagan, writing for the liberal justices, said that it doesn't take a political genius to see the heightened risk of corruption from donations made after a candidate has won and can, quote, return the favor by a vote, a contract, an appointment. Here are Justices Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor. If I have a debt of $10,000, and somebody comes along and says, you're doing such a good job, I'm going, to re- I'm going to pay that debt off for you. Isn't that a financial benefit to me? Of course. It's a gift. But you just yeah. said the magic words, to make a contribution to the winner. Not to a campaign and for its debts, but for the pockets of the winner. My guest is Richard Brafalt, a professor at Columbia Law School. So the court struck down another campaign finance rule. Are you surprised at all? Not at all, both based on the oral argument, which pretty much telegraphed where it was going to go, and more generally based on the court's philosophy of the last 10-plus years. The court has been pretty hostile to campaign finance law. I don't think it broke any new ground in this case. It kind of deepened the ground that was already there. Tell us about the rule that the court struck down. Right. So this was a a part of the McCain-Feingold law adopted about 20 years ago now, which basically limited the ability of campaigns to repay loans that a candidate made to their campaign to pay for the election. So currently, a candidate can spend as much money as he wants on an election, and the candidate can lend as much money as he wants to his own campaign. And the campaign can pay him back. But the problem is if the campaign starts to pay him back with donations received after Election Day. So under the law, the campaign can repay the candidate only up to $250,000 with donations that come in after Election Day. 
They can use any amount of money from donations that came in before Election Day, but only up to $250,000 with donations that came in after. The concern was that after Election Day, the donor knows who won. So it's more likely that the money is being given to influence the candidate. And if the money is being used to repay a loan to the candidate, in many ways, the money is almost like a gift to the candidate. The money is not going to be used actually for campaigning. The election's over. It's going to be used to repay the candidate. So those are the two ideas behind having this special restriction on the use of post-election donations to repay loans. Tell us about the reasoning in the Chief Justice's majority opinion for the conservatives. So basically, the Chief Justice reiterated ideas he's put forward in the past that although some contribution restrictions can be upheld, they present a First Amendment problem because they make it harder for candidates to raise money, that this rule in particular was a problem because by creating the possibility of a limit on the repayment of a loan, it makes it less likely a candidate will make the loan, which means there'll be less money for the candidate's campaign. So he emphasized that there is a First Amendment burden posed by this restriction on loan repayments. And then he basically dismissed the argument that there is any special corruption danger coming from post-election contributions. In his view, the other rules dealing with contributions, the fact that no donor can give more than $2,900 under federal contribution restrictions, and that any contribution that is made would be disclosed, that those are enough to deal with the corruption problem. But the government failed to show that there's any special corruption problem from post-election donations to repay a loan. The average person may not see this. Explain how the court sees campaign finance restrictions as violations of the First Amendment. In the court's view, campaigning is speech. The spending of money to support a campaign is speech. And therefore, the raising of money to support a campaign supports speech, supports the candidate's speech, so that anything that burdens the ability of the candidate to to campaign, to Um, to spend money in support of the candidate's campaign raises a First Amendment problem. The court has upheld some restrictions. It has upheld limits on the amount of money a donor can give directly to a candidate's campaign because of the danger of what the court calls quid pro quo corruption. And the court has upheld disclosure requirements. But the court has struck down any limits on a candidate's spending, any limits by organizations that support a candidate but don't literally give money to the candidate, and other kinds of restrictions uh, in this area. And basically, the court said that if you can show that the a donation really raises a serious danger of what the court calls quid pro quo corruption, you can limit it. But the court basically says that other kinds of concerns the public has on equal amounts of money or the fact that campaign contributions uh, raise dangers of unequal influence or access, that influence or access are not themselves something that Congress can regulate only something that they call quid pro quo corruption, which comes close to an outright bribe. Justice Kagan wrote a blistering dissent saying, the donors know as they paid him, so he will pay them. Well, she basically says that the special corruption potential for donations given after the election is over, when the donor knows who the winner is, and that's going to be used to repay a loan made by the candidate. So it's going basically directly back to the candidate. She says that the special corruption potential there is self-evident, that it's obvious that there's a real problem here. And then she actually goes and finds examples, basically news accounts of instances in states in the past. hasn't happened federally because the law is prohibited until now. Instances in the past where you had particularly sleazy situations of donors giving money to a candidate's campaign after the election and then basically getting some kind of reward from that candidate 
a governor who's able to steer certain contracts in certain directions. She basically says that the potential for corruption here is obvious, that there's evidence to support it. And she also returns to a theme she's used in the past, which is in trying to figure out whether something really does present a corruption danger, you should defer to Congress. You should defer to the politicians. They have a better sense of whether something is likely to breed a corruption problem than the court, which is removed from the political sphere. And so, again, she has made these arguments in the past that the Congress is a better judge of what creates a corruption danger and that the court is basically missing this in its willingness to strike down restrictions that serve interests in public confidence in government. Is campaign finance an issue that always divides the liberals and the conservatives? And if so, why? It's certainly been true for about the last almost 20 years. Further in the past, I think it was more complicated. And you did have some judges, some of the Republican appointees in the past, you know, famously Justice O'Connor, who'd been an elected official. I think she was the last member of the Supreme Court who had actually been an elected official, sharing some some of the concerns that support campaign finance regulation. And you've had some liberals in the past worried about the potential for limiting the ability of nonprofits and independent groups to campaign. But it really has solidified in the last 20 years along a conservative-liberal divide. The conservatives are concerned that any kind of government regulation here will interfere with the free movement of the political process. And the liberals see that by giving a total green light to money, that striking down campaign finance laws kind of has the potential to corrupt the political process. Ted Cruz engineered this legal dispute, and the Biden administration also argued that he lacked legal standing to challenge the provision. If the court had wanted to, could they have taken an off-ramp here and just said he doesn't have standing here? Yeah, the argument was that he basically gave himself just, loaned just enough money to his campaign to make this a real dispute. Remember I said that the, the cap on the amount of money that could be refunded in post-election contributions was $250,000. Well, he loaned his campaign 260000 They repaid him the two fifty, so it was really about the remaining ten. So it really it did look as though it had been engineered to generate a case rather than be the source of any real problem. So that was, that was argued, and the court rejected it. Interestingly, actually, um, Justice Kagan and her dissent didn't really go there. I think she was willing to defend the statute on the merits rather than just say that there was no standing. There was also another even more obscure question in the case, which is whether the real burden on Cruz came from the statute or from some implementing regs of the Federal Election Commission, including which, which had put in a, a time deadline for the repayment of uh, the loan, and which was not actually in the statute. The Cruz needed to challenge the statute to get what's called a special three-judge court and a direct appeal to the Supreme Court rather than go through the normal district court, court of appeals, Supreme Court process, which he wouldn't have had if he was only challenging a regulation. So there were some kind of technical issues in the case. But in the end, I think the, the dissent really just went with uh, the substance, and, and the majority also spent the real focus of the majority was on the substance, too. As you mentioned, this adds to a line of Supreme Court cases striking down campaign finance restrictions. The chief even said this case was a logical progression mm-hmm. in a series of cases. Tell us about some of them. Tell us about some of the ways the Supreme Court has cut back on campaign finance restrictions. Well, what's interesting, a number of things are interesting, but a couple of them is the way that the court has 
in the Buckley decision, which is now uh, almost 50 years old, 45 years old, the court drew a sharp line between expenditure restrictions and contribution restrictions. It consistently has struck down expenditure restrictions, except for the ones dealing with corporations, which lasted until Citizens United 10 years ago, and consistently upheld uh, restrictions on contributions. What's been happening now is they're now beginning to strike down some contribution restrictions as essentially unnecessary. So this decision invalidated a contribution restriction, effectively, you know, restricting the use of uh, donated contributions to repay a loan. It had nothing to do with spending. A few years ago, the court struck down a rule that had been in place really since the since Buckley, uh, since the original federal campaign finance law, which limited the amount of money a donor could give in total to all candidates. So federal law restricts the amount of money a donor can give to one candidate, an individual restriction, but there was also an aggregate cap on the amount of money uh, wealthy donors could give to all candidates. Uh, That cap had been raised substantially in the McCain-Feingold law and has been adjusted for inflation. But the court in this case, which was called McCutcheon, which is now about six years ago, so there was no justification for that, that the only justification was the potential for corruption of individual officials and the fact that a wealthy individual could give to 100 officials, so long as that, that those donations are under what is now the $2,900 cap, there's no danger of, of corruption. And then in another case involving uh, a public funding law that uh, Arizona adopted a law that basically allowed, that allows the state, that authorizes the state to give money to candidates. If candidates raise a certain amount of money in private donations, uh, the state will give them public funds uh, as a way of reducing the need to raise campaign contributions and maybe reducing the dependence on campaign contributions. The state also said that if a publicly funded candidate was facing a candidate who chose not to take public funds and as a result was able to raise more private money or was being, uh, the publicly funded candidate was also being hit hard by independent spending, the state would give that publicly funded candidate additional money. This didn't restrict any contributions to or expenditures by the other candidates, but it basically said that we're going to, in effect, help maintain a fair fight for people who take public funding. The court said that also has to go because that operated as a way to discourage spending by uh, candidates not taking public funding. So in some ways, what you're seeing is that they're, they're expanding the notion of what constitutes a limit to address something which in that case wasn't a limit at all. Uh, it was a support for the speech of publicly funded candidates, but the court treated that as a limit on uh, the privately funded candidates. And I'll give you one last one, uh, which was part of the McCain-Feingold law was something similar, which said we have these campaign contribution restrictions, but that law said that if a, a candidate is faced with an opponent who is self-funding to an unlimited amount, to a very high level. Even remember, the, the Supreme Court in Buckley said that you cannot limit how much money a candidate can, can spend on his own campaign. Congress in 2002 passed the law basically saying that we're going to raise the contribution restrictions, the restrictions on contributions to candidates who are relying on contributions if they're being opposed by a candidate who is raising his own money to a very high level. Uh, the so-called millionaires amendment. If your opponent is, is a millionaire, obviously it wasn't really about millionaires themselves. But if you had a very wealthy opponent who was spending a huge amount of his own money or her own money into her campaign, we would allow you to raise larger contributions than we normally would. And the court struck that down. Again, it was really in some ways a liberalization 
of the law for the the candidate dependent on donations, but the court said that also operated to discourage uh, the wealthy candidate from spending more money. So um, it wasn't a limit on the wealthy candidate, but the court treated it as a as like a limit on the wealthy candidate. So these decisions really uh, going back over the last decade or more, that decision I think was in the late 2000s, all kind of reflect this pattern of saying that even even cases in which candidates get more money, which was that case and the Arizona uh, public funding case, or cases in which what we're really looking at is money that isn't really restricted, that we're looking at contribution restrictions rather than spending restrictions, the court has, be, has invalidated all of those restrictions. The Supreme Court that upheld the bulk of the McCain-Feingold campaign finance law in 2003 was a very different court. I just yeah. wonder if, if they would do it now. Oh, this court almost certainly would not. And I think one of the interesting things is, I mean, some of those restrictions remain in place. They're less effective because of other developments like the rise of independent spending. And Congress has changed the laws in some respects, but there were still in place restrictions on donations to political parties, the so-called soft money restrictions, as well as older restrictions like the limits on direct contributions to a candidate. So there are some elements of the law that are still in place. But yeah, the current court, that was a 5-4 decision back in 2003. Justice O'Connor wrote much of it, and she, of course, has left the court. And the, I mean, the conservative majority is now, it seems very likely that if some of the elements of that case that came back, they would probably be struck down today. Thanks for your insights, as always, Rich. That's Professor Richard Brafault of Columbia Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.